0: I have it on, testing, all right, I am John Marshall, I am, uh, had been pastoring the last 21 years in New Mexico and the Lord's moved us up here and uh, to uh, uh, kind of revitalize or I guess or revive the, the church, the Calvary Chapel there in Nashua, so I've, I'm honored and blessed to be Uh, able to be able to share with you all it's been hard having preached for 21 years not to be behind the pulpit but God's teaching me other things Um, I, I do say as I look out at everybody right now what a bunch of weird people there's there's purpose in that there's purpose in that statement let's pray father we ask that you would just take again this morning and minister to our hearts Show us just how peculiar we are, each one of us, who are in you. Called sons and daughters of God, the Most High. Called to be sojourners. Not to plant ourselves firmly in this world, Lord God, but to hold it loosely in our hands. As we embrace your kingdom and show this world the glories of your kingdom. We pray, Lord God, that as you minister your word to us, Um, that first of all, the words spoken from this pulpit would be yours. Those that aren't, cause them to fall on deaf ears. And, And allow each one of us to leave this morning changed. And you know each one of our hearts. You know where the change needs to happen, God. We love you, and we look forward to all that you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I, I titled the message this morning, The Altered Life, and we're going to be in Psalm 16. Um, but I want to open up with a passage from Romans 12, 1 through 2 first. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. There's a story of a man who was one of the starters of the English Missionary Society. His name is William Carey. He was one of the frozen chosen of his day you know what those are? Those are the guys that say, God does everything, and we don't need to go do anything. But he was reading the Great Commission one day in Matthew, and he said, wait a second. If this was true of his apostles and his disciples, then this should be true of us, that we are to go out into all the world and proclaim the good news of his kingdom. And so what did he do? He packed up his bags, got his wife, and said, we're going to India. And, and he went to India. And everything was just peachy keen from then on out. It was all great. It was all wonderful. Everything worked out perfectly for him. No, it didn't. They lost children to disease. They, lost, they had miscarriages. His wife, uh, in, in not being able to deal with all that, lost her mind at some point. For seven years, he worked on translating one of the languages there, and he had a printing press and everything, and he had, the, he had all of his work printed out, and somebody, uh, one of the villagers threw, um, uh, I guess what today would be a, like, a, like a cocktail, whatever those bomb things that they throw in and start fire. Anyway, they, they set his hut on fire, and it burned all his work. It destroyed the printing press. And he began to walk around the next morning and pick up what he could, and he started over. Not swayed from the work God had called him to despite the trials. So, what sets Christians apart from the rest of the world? What makes us so different? Jesus Christ. In Him alone, the fact that He dwells in us and He's called us to a higher purpose, one beyond this place. You see, in Christ, we have a future and a hope no matter what happens here. And as Christians and as Christians, and as believers, we live towards that hope. In Christ, we have peace and safety because no longer does the wrath of God abide on us. We are not... Appointed for judgment any longer because we recognize Jesus took that judgment for us, and we and through his blood we have peace with God, and therefore we have fellowship with God. In Christ we are righteous and we are holy. We are the righteousness of Christ. Uh, we are the righteousness of God in Christ, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5. And in Christ we are content with our lot in life. No matter what hand has been dealt us, because our hope is not in this place, in this world, in our elections, in our, in our news agencies, but in a kingdom. The kingdom that Jesus came, by the way, proclaiming almost immediately. And Jesus proclaimed the good news of his kingdom a kingdom that stands in contrast to the world that is here on the other hand people apart from christ lack hope they live in despair and they're unsure we were up at his mansion a few weeks back and, and having lunch with some of the the residents that were there i asked a young man i told him that we were in nashua ready to plant their church he said oh man nashua needs you and i said why he said despair In Christ we are righteous. I'm sorry, I already did that part, didn't I? People apart from Christ lack peace and abide in fear because they don't have hope. The wrath of God still abides on them. They may not recognize that. They may not understand that. But the reality of their sin is that God's face is turned against them unless they would receive Jesus Christ. And people apart from Christ are wicked and lost in their sin. People apart from Christ are not content with their lot in life. They always want more. Oh, man, I loved that iPhone XS until the iPhone 11 came out. And not the two cameras, but the three cameras. It's just... It's just the way we're built, the way we are naturally. And apart from Christ, we can't be satisfied. We cannot be content because there's always something better. There's always something more that we can have, but it will never satisfy. Could there be any greater contrast than these two cultures? The culture of this world and the culture of Christianity. Those of us who are of another kingdom, another place. One is light, the other darkness. One is good, the other evil. One displays hope, the other despair. And they stand in stark contrast to one another. You see, Christianity is counterculture to the world that we live in. Understand what I'm saying. Christianity is counterculture to the world that we live in. In other words, the world that we live in is the norm. And Jesus came proclaiming the good news of his kingdom that was a future kingdom that we would all abide in at one point, but also a kingdom that would dwell in us and that he would send us into this world to proclaim the good news of that kingdom for any who would put their trust in him. We are counterculture to this world. Now, counterculture culture is defined as a way of life and set of attitudes opposed to or at variance with the prevailing social norm. Christians are counterculture to what we see happening today. And, and let me tell you something, it's getting harder to deal with. Because everything in this world is now under the guise of love. God is love, therefore, we can love whoever or whatever we want, and he's approving of that. No, God never contradicts his word or his creation and how he made things. Yes, God loves all people. Yes, God sent his son into the... For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, but for what purpose? That they might be freed from their sin and those things which won't satisfy or make them content. And I'm not preaching on that specifically this morning. If I start going there, we'll be here for two hours, and you might not appreciate that. Counterculture defined as a way of life and a set of attitudes opposed to or at variance with the prevailing social norm. Take the Sermon on the Mount. According to John Stott, the Sermon on the Mount is the nearest thing to a manifesto that Jesus ever uttered. For it is his own description of what he wanted his followers to be and to do. Now again, I'm not preaching on the Beatitudes this morning and the Sermon on the Mount. But I've always struggled with that because I've always seen it as a performance-oriented passage. If I do this, then I'm blessed. No, that's not what it's all about. It sets a standard above above what any of us can reach, but it's still his standard. It's still who he says we will be. And when we put our trust in him, we will be blessed with those things, blessed in that way. So the Christian life and the Beatitudes, or what some would call the blessed life, begins with humility and brokenness. In other words, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What kingdoms are we talking about today? The kingdoms of men and the kingdom of of, of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And, and the idea is that we come to a place of recognizing that we are absolutely bankrupt morally when it comes to the holiness and the righteousness of God. And, and, and we cannot stand before him and we recognize our sin, our sinful state, and our absolute helplessness to overcome it. And then we mourn over that and we weep over that. And we're comforted. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The idea of poor there, by the way, it's it's the kind of poverty that has you, that is so low <laughs> and so poor that there's, there's no way out. There's no way out unless somebody would come in and rescue you from it. And we're going to get to that in just a bit. Our life after brokenness and humility continues with meekness. We begin to walk, though we have strength and though we have power, we don't need to be identified by that, but we walk in meekness. Jesus was the most meek man to have lived. He didn't, from the cross, think about this, from the cross, He didn't zap the people that were mocking Him. Rather, He died for them. He didn't call, which was His right, to call upon God and say, okay, God, I'm not going to do this now. Deliver me. No, he came to deliver us. So he suffered what we should suffer. He, it was power under control. We become meek. And, and, and we begin to hunger and thirst for what is right and the things of God. We begin to display the mercy that was displayed towards us. We become merciful people towards our enemies. A pure, untainted heart towards God is now ours. And we have a labor of love or a ministry of reconciliation. Blessed are the peacemakers. God has now given us a ministry of reconciliation, reconciling those who are lost to the God who who sent his son to die for them. And not only that, but we become vessels of reconciliation in marriages and in relationships, in families. We stand in total contrast to the world where the world might look for excuses to get away from the person they, they committed their life to, the church is doing everything they can to keep those two together. Some people don't know this story. John Wesley and, and, and Charles Wesley. Brothers, Charles Wesley wrote a lot of hymns. John Wesley preached a lot of sermons, preached to a lot of lost people. And, and, but they were of a higher caste in society. And John Wesley fell in love with a woman who was of lower caste. And Charles said, this is not appropriate. While John was gone, he married her off. Charles married her off. And there was a rift in the brother's relationship. And then George Whitfield came along and said, there doesn't need to be a rift here. And he stayed with them night and day, reconciling the two. Until they were reconciled. Oh, that we... (laughs) as Christians and as believers, had such tenacity to make sure two believers would remain together. Blessed are the peacemakers. And one of the things that marks us as blessed is that we will be rejected by those who refuse to be reconciled to God. That's just the way it is. Jesus said, if they hated me, they'll hate you. That's a mark of the blessed life. Now, understand, we don't do these things, as I said, because in order to be blessed, but we do them because we are blessed in Jesus. The plea, therefore, of Paul in Romans 12 1 through 2 is to live the altered life. And I, and I misspelled it on purpose. Our life has been altered by him at the altar of the cross. And so we, we come the altar, and we say, Lord, change us. Lord, work these things in us. Work these blessings in us that the world might see you in all that you are, that they might know a hope beyond this place. The plea of Paul in Romans 12, 1 through 2 is to live the altered life for which Christ offered himself on our behalf. We are living sacrifices, and people on the outside looking in have one of two responses. I want what you have because I'm disillusioned by this world. Or I hate what you represent because I love this world. And I love being in control of my own destiny. There's no room for any other response. If we are weird. Living peculiar, different, separate, Counterculture to this world. We will be either attractive or we will be an offense. Psalm 16 paints a beautiful picture of a counterculture church uh, by putting on display a culture of trust, uh, a culture of fellowship, a culture of where we place our value, what we put value in, a culture of seeking wisdom from God, a culture of of, of help and a culture of joy. Verse 1. Let's go ahead and read the whole psalm. It is short, and then I'll go back through it. Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. O my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord, my goodness is nothing apart from you. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another god. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor take up their names on my lips. O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. The lines have fallen, uh, you maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance." I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope for you will not leave my soul in Sheol. Nor will you allow your Holy One to seek corruption. You will show me the path of life in your presence In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I tell you what, I could just read it over again and be blessed just reading it. As I was going through my devotions a week ago, I retitled this psalm, The Blessed Life. The blessed life is one that trusts God, first of all. We, as a counterculture church, are a, a culture of trust. The words here indicate that David wrote this psalm while in the midst of a trial. Yet it doesn't have the same flavor many of his other psalms do when he finds himself in the same predicament. There's, there's this anxiousness you hear in David's words. There's this anxiety. There's this, God, where are you? God, I'm speaking. Would you? But it always comes to the end of it that he knows, okay, God, I may not feel you right now, I may not. but I know who you are. I know you're faithful. I know I'm yours. I know you've got my back. This one, on the other hand, it's it's, um, from a place, he writes it from a place of confidence and peace and rejoicing. It's like, like, God, I know this trial is in the midst of me, but I can't help it. I know you've got my back. I know you've got this. I, I rejoice. In my deliverance, I rejoice in all that you have in store even through this trial. God, you're amazing. You're awesome. How is it that he's able to have such peace and joy in the midst of a trial? Because all is well with his soul. He says to his soul, you are my Lord. God You are my Lord with his soul. It's one thing to say it with our lips, isn't it? And it's another thing to even proclaim it in front of other people. But to say it to God from the very core of your being, You, God, are my master. I have no control over my life anymore. My life is not my own. You bought me with a price. What is what we would say as Christians, right? Jesus, you bought me with a price. I am yours. You are my Lord. It's to say he is our Lord with all that we are, with a whole being. What, what is it that uh, uh, the, the first and greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. With everything that we are, we give give ourselves to him. And David was okay in the midst of this trial because he had given his soul over to the Lord. You are my master. I may be a king on earth, but you're the king in heaven and you're my king. The Christian is set apart from the world by trust displayed in God during the trial. I have so many examples, and I don't have time to go into all those examples, but I think of somebody like Johnny Erickson Tata. Most of us know who she is. And, and, and I, she wasn't a believer. I don't think she was a believer when she had her injury and became a quadriplegic. Uh, became a, and Maybe she was. I don't remember the whole story. But it really came down to a place of her ultimately putting her trust and her faith in God. And though she wakes up every morning weary of this broken body that she lives in. She serves the Lord, and she loves him, and she serves others. She has an attitude beyond her circumstance that only God could provide. That's what makes us weird. That's what makes us different in this world. The apostles, when threatened by the religious leaders and actually beaten for proclaiming Christ, rejoice that they should be counted worthy to to suffer for his name's sake. What a bunch of weirdos, right? Just doesn't make sense. Peter, speaking to a persecuted church, reminds them who they are in Christ. Hey, I know you guys are suffering, but you have a hope that goes beyond this place. You have a living hope. And, and, and you endured this stuff because the reality is you have joy inexpressible and full of glory. Why? The salvation of your souls. So he, he was telling the people who had lost family members, who had been separated from family members, who had lost their possessions and lost their homes because of their faith in Jesus Christ, because they were citizens of another kingdom, foreigners in this land, And he was telling them, don't worry about it, man. Your treasure is in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy. God is holding it for you, and he will keep it for you until you get there. Therefore, you have joy inexpressible and full of glory. Our culture of trust goes beyond this world into eternity. Now, David says something here. He he says, my goodness is nothing apart from you. And I like the way the ESV says this better. He says, I have no good apart from you, God. That's not a covetous man, is it? That's one who finds all his riches in the Lord. I love the songs this morning, Dean. They really spoke to this truth. We are told that every good and perfect gift comes from God, right? Everything that we have comes from God. And everything... uh, so that even if that stuff is taken from us in this world, we still have him. Consider Job. He's our example of one who lost everything. Satan even said, if he loses everything, if he loses his health, if he loses his family, if he loses all his possessions, if his wife nags him, just curse God and die. He'll curse you. God was like, go for it. He says in the midst of having lost everything, naked I came into the world, naked I leave the world. God gives, God takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. How weird. How unusual. How peculiar that is in this world that lives for things and finds their identity in things. This is a culture of trust that looks beyond this world into the kingdom of God. One illustration here of my own life, Devin and I went to a marriage retreat in Hawaii. I know someone had to. And we We suffered. So we went to this marriage conference, and, and, and we needed it. I, I needed it. Uh, my wife needed me to need it. <laughs> and, and amen, brother. Somebody say amen, brother. I repeat. Oh. Um, and I, I'm forgetting the guy's name that, that spoke. I mean, Skip was one of the speakers, Skip Heitzig, and then another guy. The, but he said something. He said, your greatest need is not to be loved. And in that moment, I went, Because I knew where he was going with it. Your greatest need is not to be loved. That need has already been met. And I went, oh. God, you love me perfectly. Even when I fail, your love is still faithful towards me. I will never cease being your child when I'm a numbskull when I go off and do stupid things, God, you love me not based on my performance, but you love me based on who you are. And and I began to rejoice in that because, and Devin rejoiced even more because now I was not looking to her to be my source of love. You see, God became my only good. Now the Bible says it's good to have a wife. The Bible said, as a matter of fact, it said it's not good that man is alone, right? these, These are good things, but when these things take the throne of God and take the place of God, they become evil, they become bad, they become wrong, and they cause all kinds of havoc in our lives. But when God is our one, is the one, then it puts everything else into order, and we actually love more. We actually do more. He said, your greatest need now is to give what you've been given. Verse 3. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another god. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor take up their name on my lips. So the church The counterculture church is a culture of fellowship, a culture of fellowship. One of those things that sets the Christians apart from this world is their desire to be with someone who loves their Lord, is their desire to be with someone who loves their God. And when we step beyond that and we begin to embrace somebody that does not love God like we love God, it's called being unevenly yoked. And, and, and there's all kinds of problems that come with that. As a matter of fact, David, David goes on to say, uh, 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 um, where is it? Their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another god. That's true of us as well. That's just true of the world. That's what happens. They're chasing after other gods and their sorrows will multiply. But when we as the church look to somebody who doesn't love God like we do, and we expect them to love us, they can't. They're not empowered to do so. We're very different people. We're weird. And they're not in this world. Right? And so, so I want you actually to turn with me to 2 Corinthians um, 6, because Paul has a lot of strong words to say about this. And it's it's concerning to me that in our Christian, in our Christianity. People don't seem to have a sense for what it means to be unequally yoked, and what happens. So Paul paints a good picture for us. Second um, Corinthians six. I'm in First Corinthians. That's the problem. Just go to the place where you marked it, John. That's all. See, look, I marked it. Verse thirteen. For if we are bes- let's go to verse twelve. For we do not commend ourselves again to you. Uh, Am I in the right place? No, that was chapter 5. I'm like, that is not right. Okay. Now in return for the same, verse 13, chapter 6. Now in return for the same, I speak as to children, you also be open. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? Hear these contrasts? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial, or the devil? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with the idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Paul is quoting from Scripture, but you you see the clear contrast. Why? Why would we bring into fellowship with the Lord someone who doesn't love him? And we need to be careful in this area. And so, so David says, I delight in the excellent ones. He's not saying, I mean, he's speaking, of, he's speaking of his Jewish brethren here. We can read a lot in the Old Testament that show how unexcellent they can actually be. But what made them excellent is God, God is their God. So we have this culture of fellowship. Uh, What makes them excellent is that they are saints, and they are saints because God set them apart and chose them to be his very own. Not when they were a great and mighty people, but when they were small and insignificant, so that it says more about God than it does them. It is no different with us as Christians. Peter says in his first letter, 1 Peter 2, 9-10, through 10, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for, of his, for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellences, excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is who we are in Christ. And, and, and to marry ourselves to someone who doesn't love Christ is, is to put the two negative ends of the magnet together. It doesn't work. Is to put oil and water together. It doesn't mesh. And it causes strife and it causes problems. Now, I know what some of you may be saying. Does this mean we aren't to have unbelieving friends? Absolutely not. Why would Jesus have eaten at the house of Zacchaeus? Why would, he be, why would he be castigated by the religious leaders for, for uh, hanging out with sinners and publicans and prostitutes? You, you see, they, the religious leaders, had taken to the extreme, we will not touch because we will be unholy if we touch. We will not fellowship with any who are tainted, not to mention they themselves being tainted. You guys are a bunch of whitewashed tombs, Jesus said, you hypocrites. No, so it's important for us to be friendly. No, we don't have to do what they do. And no, it doesn't mean we should marry them if they don't know the Lord. Don't go there. It only causes great grief and pain. Nor would I have a business partner who was an unbeliever because his values or her values are different than mine. That's what Paul, I would rather be with the ones who are excellent, those who have the same conviction I do, those who walk with the Lord and fear God and love him with all their heart. Or at least they're trying. (laughs) Verse 5, back in Psalm 16. O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. The the culture of Christianity or or the counterculture of Christianity in this world is that we have a culture of wealth the world cannot attain. We have a culture of wealth. Jesus said uh, uh, in his Sermon on the Mount that saints are to store their treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy. Don't don't raise up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. That's the hope of the unbeliever, is that everything they possess in this world can be taken from them in a moment. But Peter says to the believing church, hey, what's been taken from you in this world was going to perish anyway. Serve God, live for him, be obedient to his command, store your treasures in heaven, and, and he will hold them for you until you get to that place. The number one issue in almost every election is, is the economy. Unless there is a war happening, it's always the economy. And if the economy is good, re-election usually takes place. If the economy is bad, let's try somebody new, because after all, this is my security we're talking about here. And that's what the world has hope in, is our politicians. Yeah. I don't care what side they're on, they're a mess. And they're not my God. My God is an ever-present help in time of need. My God can provide for me according to his riches in glory. 1 Peter 1, 3-4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. When you think of the opening verses of the Beatitudes, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Look at this picture in terms of of the poorest man around. The poorest child around. And, 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 And the poverty is such that there's no way they could pick themselves up by their bootstraps and get out of that circumstance or that situation. Just imagine that. Well, that's you and me in our sin, apart from Christ. Now imagine the richest man in the world has, I mean, nobody compares to his riches. And he finds that child and he says, I want to make you my son. I want to make you my daughter. And I'm I'm not just going to give you a million dollars to give you a chance at making it. I'm not going to put money in your bank account hoping that somehow you have the the ingenuity and the way to make something of yourself and become successful. No, I'm going to adopt you so that all that I have now becomes yours. Did that child do anything to earn that? Did he do anything to merit that? That's grace. And now he's become the richest person. She's become the richest person in the world because their father, her father, his father, is the richest person around. That is God. You see, we're not just his subjects. We have become adopted as co-heirs with Christ, the Bible tells. Our wealth is the very wealth of God. And we may be poor as dirt here in this world, but there are treasures in heaven waiting for us. As a matter of fact, it's not treasures like we tend to think. I thought about this last week. I was thinking, you know what? We think of our treasures in heaven. We've got a crown, we've got jewels. Man, you know, every good thing I do here sends a two-by-four up into heaven because Jesus, after all, is building a mansion for me. And I realized, what shallow thinking that is. What shallow thinking. That's thinking the way the world thinks. That's not peculiar. That's not weird. That's not unusual. You want to know what our treasure is, guys? It's the Lord. He is our portion. He is our lot. He's all we need. And when the elders at the throne worship God, they lay their crowns at the altar. They may indeed be crowns that that, that signify their obedience to the work God called them to, but when they stand before their Lord, when they stand before their Savior, they say, these don't matter. To you belongs all the glory, God. To you. And we love you. I was reading one of David's psalms. Again, and, and, he, and it's, it's Psalm 18, I think. or uh, Anyways, after he'd been delivered from all of his enemies, Saul and all of that. And it just opens up simply like this. God, I love you. What a statement. What a statement. Verse 7. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. The Christian, um, the, the counterculture of the Christian in this world is a culture of prayer. A culture of prayer that says, God, I need you. God, I love you. God, I can't live in this place apart from you. God, you are my ever-present help in time of need. It's a culture that says that that it's it's not the American kind of mentality that says, pick yourself up by the bootstraps and make something of your life. No, it's the attitude that says, God, I need you to make something of my life. Because I mess it up. It, it, It is this humility that says, God, I need you. I need your help in this, or I'm going to mess the whole thing up. In one particular instance, uh, uh, one particular instance saw David come home to a disaster when raiders had destroyed his village and taken everything, including his wives and his children, all his men's wives and their children, And the people were grieving, and they were mourning his his soldiers. They were mourning, they were grieving. And and David got really concerned because they began to pick up stones. And they began to look at David. And they began to say, this is your fault. Turn with me to 2 Samuel 30, verses 1 through 8. Let's read that account just a little bit, because it's just so much fun to read. 2nd Samuel 30 verses 1 through 8 and we see this account here now it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag a- attacked a- Yeah was that was that not 2nd Samuel Oh 2nd Sam 1st Samuel I'm sorry I turned to the right place. Where were you guys? Where I told you to go? That little devil changed that number on my paper. All right, let me start over. Now it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag, attacked Ziklag, and burned it with fire, and had taken captive the women and those who were there, From small to great, they did not kill anyone, but carried them away and went their way. So David and his men came to the city, and there it was, burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters had been taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept until they had no more power to weep. Are we affected when the things of this world, when disaster strikes? Sure we are. It would be unusual if we weren't. It doesn't mean we we don't mourn over the death of our loved ones. It doesn't mean we don't wonder at the loss of all things through a hurricane, through an earthquake, or whatever else. We do mourn. We do grieve. Then David and the people were with him lifted up their voices and wept until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite, had been taken captive. Now David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved. Everything's down in that soul, isn't it? Every man for his sons and his daughters. Listen to this. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. How? Through prayer. He was in an impossible situation. His life was being threatened by his own people. They were in despair, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Then David said to Abiathar, the priest of son, Please bring the ephod here to me. And Abiathar brought the ephod to David. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them without fail and recover all. What do you mean, David? Go rescue your wife. Go rescue your men's wives. Go rescue. What are you praying for? Why are you asking God if you should even do this thing? You see, the culture of prayer within Christianity is not reactive. We seek God's wisdom. We seek God's help. We seek his direction. And the world is looking at that and going, what do you mean? You coward. You're going to ask God if you should go do something that you should do? No, David wasn't reactionary. Even though his life was being threatened, even though his wives had been taken, he said, God, I need you in this. Would you direct my steps? Would you give me wisdom? And God said, go get them, boy. They're yours, and you will have lost nothing. Only our God The Christian isn't to be reactionary, but prayerful. Paul exhorts us to give all things to God in prayer with thanksgiving. Uh, Don't worry about anything, right? But in prayer and thanksgiving, uh, don't worry about anything, but in all things through prayer and thanksgiving, present your requests to God and what? The peace of God, which makes no sense at all in the moment, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. And those are the things that are most toyed with, aren't they? Our hearts and our minds. When disaster strikes, we can't stop thinking about it. Our heart aches. But we strengthen ourselves in the Lord, and he comes through. Verse 9. Moving right along. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life and your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We live in a culture of praise. The church is a culture of praise and adoration to their God. All that David therefore all that David has already said produces praise in his life. His whole being wells up his whole body with, with joy and rejoicing. God, I love you, he said in, in Psalm 18, I think. You can look it up. God, I love you, he says many times in any other psalms. His whole being wells up with joy. Why? Because his hope goes beyond this place into eternity. His, his, all is well with his soul. All is well with his soul. He says, you will not let your Holy One see decay. I know that's speaking of Jesus in a prophetic sense. Paul and Peter both quote this passage in talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord. But do you realize that also David is speaking of himself? Uh, It's speaking of us as co-heirs, as sons. Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead. We all who put our trust in him follow And so our hope isn't that that when we are buried and dead in the ground that we remain there. Job said, in my flesh, though my flesh be destroyed, in my flesh I will see you and I will worship you. (laughs) Wow. There is a resurrection that's going to happen in the last day that we all are going to be a part of. Listen, if our lives, and I need to finish up here with this, if our lives aren't marked with praise, adoration, with joy, the problem lies with us and our focus, not with God. It means we probably aren't living counterculture to the world. And Satan is robbing our joy. Paul says in in uh, Colossians 2, uh, 2 verse 8, um, don't put your trust in God. I don't know why I'm forgetting the verse. I had it memorized many times, but the idea is don't put your trust in this world because it will rob you. It will steal you. Put your trust in Christ, the one who's raised from the dead. Apart from faith that saves us, we haven't stepped into the Jordan. Remember that picture? God bringing the children of Israel into the promised land? The priests had to step into the Jordan River at full flood waters. And when their feet touched the water, God parted. It. Maybe we're not stepping in faith into the areas that God has asked us to step into. Unlike Ezekiel, we stay ankle deep in the water. We, we put our faith and had salvation, but from there we've not walked in the works that he's made for us. We, like Ezekiel, need to go up to the knees and then up to the waist and then find ourselves wading in deep water. As we begin to test the Lord and all that he's called us to do. Uh, George Mueller provided for 7,000 orphans at one time because of a verse in the Psalms that said, Open your mouth wide and taste and see that I am good. And so he said, God, you will provide for these orphans. And God did. Are we putting ourselves in a place? Are we wading deep or are we still ankle deep? If we lack praise, maybe we lack fellowship with those who wade deeper. Have you ever been discipled? For that matter, those who are wading deeper, have you looked at someone in this room, in this place, that needs discipleship? That needs you to come alongside them and, and, and walk in faith with them? Every Timothy needs a Paul. And every Paul needs an Apollos. Not an Apollos, I'm sorry. A Bar- A Barnabas. <laughs> Every, every Apollos needs an Aquila and a Priscilla. If we lack praise, maybe it's because we put our hope in the riches of this world and don't realize how rich we are in Christ. Both the rich and the poor are subject to covetousness, aren't they? And even believers find themselves in that place, and it, and it robs us. But when we put our trust in God, even in those things... We see things unbelievable and we go, God, you're unbelievable. That's praise. If we lack praise, it may be because we look to chariots and horses and not to the hand of the Lord to deliver us. He's there with arms wide open. Do you know what eternal life is? Jesus actually defines us for, defines it for us in John 17. He said, you've given me the power to give eternal life, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You know what that word know is? It's koinonia, it's fellowship, it's intimacy, it's relationship, it's back and forth, it's God, Daddy, God, my Father. Yes, Son, yes, Child, what can I do? Let me tell you about, about my amazing creation over here. Let me tell you about the wonder of the peanut since you asked George Washington Carver. There's it is the right of kings to unfold the mysteries of God. Do you take up your, your royalty? You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. The wonders that will follow when we when we just put ourselves in a place of, hey Dad, what now? What's next? I opened with the story of William Carey. I want to close with the story of Jim Elliot and his friends. The Horani people of Ecuador were considered a murdering tribe. Sixty percent of the deaths in their tribe, were by murder. Which is the result of envy, right? And missionaries stayed away. And Jim Elliott and his friends, Nate Saint and the others, were told stay away, but they said, no, we need to go to these people. And of course, they ended up, just as people said, murdered, all four of these men, seeking to bring the love of God, the love of the kingdom, the love of the gospel. They were murdered by these men. Some of you might not know the story that happened afterwards. A year later, the wives with their children went to the same tribe and they won them to the gospel. That's weird. What are you thinking? Taking your children into harm's way? You yourselves, as women? As women? No men to go with you? What's wrong with you in this man's world? It is a man's world. What's wrong with you people? God. God is what's wrong with us. This is what he's called us to do. To go. To go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. And the whole village gets saved. They became... They became lovers instead of murderers because of the faithfulness of these grieving women who would not let their husbands' lives go for naught. But a seed fall on the ground and die, it can bear no fruit. But drove them to show such mercy to the people that murdered their husbands, the love of God compelled them. Like Jesus, they came proclaiming the good news of his kingdom, where people didn't murder others anymore. Jesus called us. He empowered us to be witnesses in this world. You will receive power, he said, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Let's get out of the ankle-deep water. Let's at least go up to the knees. The praise coming from your lips as God begins to do things will be astounding. As we get ready to take communion, I think Anthony is going to lead that. Let's consider these things. Let's ask God, 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 where is the praise coming from? Where is the praise coming from? Do I need to wade deeper? Let's let him do that work in our lives. Go ahead, Anthony. I think you're...